Hi guys, I am here today with Yakum. He is the co-founder of the company April 19, where they use AI to find novel APIs, which are active pharmaceutical ingredients from psychedelic compounds that could lead to mental health transformations while eliminating undesirable effects. I'm so happy we could get this arranged. Thank you for being here. Hi, Elia. Thanks. Thanks for getting me on. Happy to be here. Of course. So tell us, what is your background and what did you study? Uh, so I'm originally a medicinal chemist. Uh, I've studied drug production and synthesis here at the University of Chemistry and Technology in Prague. And um, through this uh, unique chance for my own uh, drug discovery project in, at the university, I managed to get into the field of drug design, and I've also studied uh, drug design at University College London then. So um, that's what got me here. That's very cool. So how did April 19 come to life? So it was a meeting of uh, two paths, uh, me having uh, this kind of hypothesis about a unique class of novel psychedelic compounds from my research. And um, after finishing my studies at UCL in London, I, I came to uh, meet Saran and Richard, who are my other colleagues, fellow co-founders of April 19. And uh, they are the AI guys behind the company. And they've been working a long time in AI and machine learning um, in different fields. And they, um, you know, got themselves into biotech and um, at the same time, as me started to look into psychedelics, uh, they had this uh, psychonaut friend who um, really, you know, introduced them and got them excited about uh, this new possibility. And when we met, it was like, oh, the stars aligned and, you know, <laughs> we are, this is the perfect person that, you know, fits into our team. And it was about... Um, taking uh, this know-how about psychedelic drug design and uh, these compounds I've been working on and really supercharging that with the latest AI technology that uh, is just emerging in, in the field of uh, artificial intelligence for drug discovery. Nice. So did you find your passion for psychedelics a while ago or is this more of a recent thing and it just happened to align with their, what they wanted to do? Um, so I've been on this path for a long time. I um, got into the research and the culture also uh, while at university. Uh, through a friend, I've gotten involved with the Czech Psychedelic Society and I became a member of the Czech Psychedelic Society um, and um, it's an organization 
that does uh, lots of different things from raising awareness about um, uh, psychedelics and their benefits and doing harm reduction campaigns and even services like PsyCare and um, also connecting researchers in the field working on uh, different parts of this uh, psychedelic phenomenon. And uh, through the network there, I um, and also around my laboratory where I work at, at uh, uh, in Prague, I gotten you know starting to get more and more connections and and eventually being here yeah that's awesome i'm also part of some kind of organization with psychedelics too it's called base staters um in massachusetts it's also you know getting more spread out but we work to decriminalize uh psychedelics and you know spread awareness as well so it's cool to see that you know there's these organizations you know, all over the place, really, all over the world, because we really need to, you know, bring that community together to spread awareness of what these could do for people. So that's awesome. Great work. So, yes, thank you. So why does it take so long to develop a drug? Um, Okay, yeah, there's a bunch of reasons, right? So um, it is... uh, become as a um, quality control uh, practice that is uh, getting more and more um, thorough and strict over the years. So uh, initially, um, you could label anything as being a medicine or a drug and sell it to people. Uh, But, you know, then people start to get uh, you know, sick and, you know, dying in the worst case from uh, different uh, things sold as medicine. And uh, slowly over the years, you know, regulators came and uh, required um, more rigorous testing, you know, whether this can, you know, this brings enough benefit to people and is safe to use. And so um, we in this, you know, the rising complexity of this world means that um, the requirements for anything to pass as um, medicine, as a drug, is like the bar is really high. And um, you need to go through uh, a lot of phases. So uh, very broadly, first it's the design of a compound and then the standard really in vitro uh, assays uh, on isolated uh, receptors or cells, then, you know, on maybe smaller animals to test the efficacy and toxicity, then maybe on larger animals, and then it goes to humans and then starts three phases of clinical testing on healthy humans, then uh, treating the disease in a pilot study, and then, you know, in a large scale study, and you have to pass all of this and prove that your drug works and is safe. Um, And that's why it is, you know, you know, it takes a lot of time and also costs a lot of money. Yeah. Like how long would you say, uh, some drugs would take to go through that whole process. Mm. 
Or does it vary a lot? Um, yeah, so, um, you know, the uh, what we were taught at uni was 10 years. Um, and <sighs> um, it's maybe... <laughs> Some people are saying it's getting longer. Some people are saying it's getting shorter. It depends on like <laughs> if you ask maybe the academia or or uh, the pharma industry. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there are two factors in this. So on one hand, uh, we have kind of exhausted the low hanging fruit in terms of medicine so to speak. So the simple molecules that can do something and the, um, let's say, systems in the body that we know how they work and we can regulate them well, we already have drugs for that. So there are, you know, more and more advanced, uh, you know, systems of signaling and receptors and the molecules that are designed are, you know, bigger and more complex. Uh, so is, uh, that is, you know, uh, making the process last longer, but on the other hand, um, what is now like recently really spread, uh, on the rise is the increase in efficacy of the drug discovery process. And that's where, for example, artificial intelligence comes to play where you can really accelerate the first part of the drug discovery process, which is the design and, you know, kind of putting together the molecule that you're going to synthesize and test whether it works. And by employing different AI and machine learning models, you can really shorten this period and make it, you know, more effective uh, in the early stages. And then you have higher quality candidates to go through uh, this process. And um, uh, you expect to see fewer failures along the way through the clinical trials, for example. Yeah. So how does machine learning work exactly? Okay. Um, That's um, um, really broadly... um, (laughs) <laughs> because also uh, you have to keep in mind um, not the AI guy behind <laughs> our company. Uh, I'm the medicinal chemist and, um, you know, uh, really I'm working with uh, <laughs> experts that have been studying this for decades. Uh, so I uh, <laughs> don't know if I can uh, do it justice, but uh, very broadly speaking, Um, machine learning is about designing an algorithm that can on its own kind of find patterns in large amounts of data. And um, there are these two main categories, let's say. Uh, This is supervised learning and unsupervised learning. And in the unsupervised learning, this is really, okay, um, I have a lot of uh, data and I really just want to make sense of it. Uh, So um, 
the model gives you some relationships between the different um, molecules, let's say, how they are similar to each other and, and so on. And then there's the supervised learning where we focus on mostly. And this is what when you first train the model with so-called labeled data, which is data that you already know something about. Um, for example, in the world of drug discovery, that would be this compound has an activity and binds to this receptor. I know how strongly it binds, and I know this ab about thousands of compounds. I can teach the model, okay, train the model. Look, you know, this is what makes a compound bind, and it can then predict, okay, uh, there's a novel compound. I don't know anything about that. What what do you think? Does it bind or not? And this is the basis of the um, predictive um, machine learning uh, that we really, you know, uh, approach from different angles because there's a bunch of different properties about a given molecule and um, we can predict all those using machine learning. This is so cool. Like when I found out about this, I just knew that, you know, AI is going to be, you know, the future of finding these new drugs and medicines. I mean, it can cut down so much time and, you know, do the work of predicting what molecules could potentially work. I feel like we're going to find a lot of really cool stuff. <laughs> so that's so exciting. So what are the steps to identify a drug candidate? I, I was going through your website and I saw it said that there were more drug-like compounds than there are observable atoms in the universe. <laughs> so is that true? Uh, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So... Um... It is. That's why we have it on the website. <laughs> um, honestly, it's um, about uh, the possible combinations of how can you put different atoms and join them together. Um, and uh, the combinations of uh, just, you know, let's say, 20 atoms uh, that would be maybe uh, a typical molecule uh, that can be used as a drug. Uh, the, the combinations, how you can, you know, arrange them in space and have different bonds between them and uh, even accounting for that there's a couple of different atoms that you can use. Uh, then uh, really the, the, the combinations explode uh, exponentially into uh, really crazy numbers that you cannot, you know, go this uh, trial and error approach, you know, I'm going to make all of these and see if one of them works. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's when you need to find effective ways how to explore that, what we call the chemical space. Uh, this is um, the space of possibilities, if you will, of what kind of um, arrangements in um, uh, connectivity of the atoms are possible. And uh, when we kind of go for the search of this ideal candidate, it is um, inherently this 
uh, multi-objective search because you have um, different properties of every molecule and uh, you're first starting from the uh, usually the activity uh, at a certain receptor that you're trying to target. Um, in this psychedelic space, the holy grail receptor that um, everyone is talking about as this being the primary driver of this classical psychedelic action is serotonin 5-HT2A receptor. And um, generally you want to know whether your compounds bind to it or not and whether they activate it or not and whether they activate it in the right way, so to speak. So um, this is just the beginning, right? Uh, but you first have to have this kind of nailed down if you want to have a psychedelic compound. And uh, then when you're uh, selecting, you know, the optimal candidate, you also have to look at um, uh, properties such as um, solubility and uh, absorption and uh, distribution throughout the body and metabolism and toxicity, of course. Um, and uh, when selecting the optimal candidate, you have to, uh, so what we are doing is predicting all these um, relevant properties of that compound and then putting them together, you know, prioritizing what's the most important property that we really need uh, the compound to have, um, what are, you know, somewhat less important properties. And um, we have this uh, pretty sophisticated system where you assign different weights to different properties, and then um, you calculate these multi-parameter scores, basically, where you uh, can calculate a score for, um, you know, multiple properties uh, together, and uh, then you can sort or rank the molecules by that one score. And uh, you can presume that the highest scoring compounds are going to have somewhat of the optimal configuration or like set of properties that would make it um, the likeliest candidate to pass all those uh, preclinical and clinical trials to make it to the you know marketable drug. Uh, and uh, uh, the prediction is uh, always one part of it, but in the end, uh, you're still looking at these molecules, um, at these predictions manually, and there is always this component of kind of chemical intuition and um, kind of uh, assessment of what you know could go wrong or what could go right uh, from um, from you know this higher level overview. Uh, of, of a human mind. So it's not just um, the artificial intelligence doing it all on its own. Um, and then also other things come into play, which are, um, you know, questions like intellectual property rights and, 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 and like, you know, business considerations that um, are kind of 
affecting your decisions whether to go along with developing this drug or this drug and so on. But I probably have touched upon only just a small portion of all the, the considerations. Oh. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a difficult process. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet it's a lot. So when, you know, trying to find your ideal drug candidate, do you want to, I saw that you wanted to maximize the benefits of these compounds and also minimize the the undesirable effects so i'm guessing you know you don't want people to hallucinate it's more just like um you know getting the most benefits from these compounds right mm -hmm. so it's mm -hmm. about um the the currently studied and the currently used psychedelics in therapy are pretty much natural compounds or chance discoveries and they have been you know so widespread because of their psychedelic effects and not because of their therapeutic effects and so what someone has done yeah, okay, this compound also has therapeutic effects. So let's try and explore that. And this is completely fine. And there is, you know, a lot of therapeutic potential in these, what we could call the first generation of psychedelic compounds, like uh, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, um, ketamine. Uh, there's different definitions of what is considered a psychedelic. And... Um, but, you know, taking basically, you know, this kind of randomly discovered compound and using it to treat a certain indication, it's uh, never the best way um, uh, or it would be a very high, you know, it's, it's not very probable that it would be the best drug for that indication because um, you can make... Um, different tweaks and modifications to the molecule to, I don't know, make it last longer or shorter, um, make it, um, you know, kind of play with the property so the compound could be, um, for example, safer for certain patients. So uh, there is... Um, an issue of potential cardiotoxicity in some psychedelic compounds that um, in theory could be removed through optimization. And um, other thing is, for example, the onset of tolerance of these compounds is that um, you cannot take them regularly and keep the same effects. Um, and also, uh, some people do consider the psychedelic effects themselves, like hallucinations and cognitive changes, as being a side effect. Um, I don't think it could be um, uh, considered one or the other. I think it's somewhere in between. Uh, it's uh, most likely a part of that, um, you know, action and therapeutic action is also the psychedelic and cognitive effects but it is definitely you know possible 
to adjust it so it might not be as disruptive to people. It might not cause that much, I don't know, anxiety, paranoia. And that is really, really, you know, um, advanced uh, thing, how different people perceive the phenomenology of those effects and what is considered, you know, adverse reaction, what's positive therapeutic reaction. Um, But if I can just talk about our approach to this, we are really, um, uh, what, what we are really focused on is overcoming the limitations that are very obvious for these compounds. And for example, um, these compounds are currently used in this psychedelic assisted psychotherapy regime where it's very irregular, you know, one or two time dosing of people. And um, it is an intense demanding experience, requires constant medical supervision throughout preparation before integration, after follow-up and so on. And uh, for example, if you wanted to apply the same kind of basis of the healing effect for a different indication, let's say not mental health, but neurodegenerative disorders, for example, where these compounds are also showing promise, um, you couldn't really use this um, dosing regime, let's say. Uh, and you would require something that would not cause the rapid onset of tolerance. You'd need to dose it regularly. Um, You would really need to make sure that there's no cardiotoxicity with longer um, dosing, long-term dosing. And um, ideally, you would need to find the perfect dose and uh, ratio of the hallucinogenic effects so that people would not be impaired while being dosed throughout the day, for example, or that the impairment is um, manageable in the sense that it's not, um, it's not causing more harm than good for it, basically. And, 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 and this is something that the, currently the psychedelics first generation, they, they, they don't have, they're not ready for that and they need some modifications or they, we need to find different compounds to be able to fill, fill that need, let's say. Yeah, so like a microdose, something like that, like it would feel like, yeah, that's awesome <laughs> because, wow, like I know a lot of people could benefit just from microdosing, but if you could have something that people feel more safe taking, that's not going to build the tolerance as fast as you know mushrooms would do for example like that would be a game changer like i already know what you guys are doing is a huge game changer i'm very excited for what you guys are doing because i know it's you know gonna give people more access um to these compounds that can really help you know their mindsets and stuff like Mm -hmm. that so it's very cool uh so you said uh so the other areas of interest that you had, right, for these compounds, yeah. can you expand on yeah, that? Yeah, 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 um, definitely. So um, about the microdosing, this is really something that's um, 
so elusive. Everyone's trying to see, like, does it work or does it not work? And it's so hard to get a really um, robust study to prove that they have, you know, the effects that are being um, uh, basically uh, attributed to uh, to them. And it's really difficult because different people have different sensitivity to these compounds. So you cannot really, you know, just copy paste the dosing for um, uh, different people. And um, it's the question of, okay, usually you can see an effect in, in people that is, you know, some beneficial in some ways, but then you can also see that there's a little bit of this impairment. And, and when, you know, you are sure that you're not seeing any, you know, mind alteration, then usually the effects are, you know, not, not significant or like not uh, exciting. <laughs> and, and, and so it's really about um, that there's some very true and very basic thing uh in the sense that there is no drug without side effects and this is an exactly the same um you know the right place where to apply this is look if you want to have an effect from a psychedelic you have to give yourself that dose that you feel. And once you feel it, you're feeling it. And those are the effects that help you. So it's like claiming that sub-perceptual doses are going to have also an effect. It's like, it's it's a very thin ice, I I believe. And um, uh, every time when someone tells you, we have, you know, this magic pill that, you know, increases cognition and creativity and everything, and there's no side effects. Don't believe them because that's, that's usually, that's usually a scam. And uh, that's why we are trying to find compounds that are really going to have effects that are, you know, tangible, uh, but not intrusive. So, um, you know that uh, it's both for mental health, but also going beyond uh, to, as I said, neurodegenerative disorders, and then, for example, neural injury recoveries. Um, and that is because the mechanism of action of psychedelics is uh, tied with increase of neuroplasticity and also neurogenesis in certain parts of the brain. And um, some the increase in neuroplasticity is uh, essentially not as cool as it sounds. <laughs> I have to say this. Uh, people have made it into a buzzword. But the truth is that, uh, in a sense, every antidepressant increases neuroplasticity. Um, every learning is neuroplasticity. Uh, so it's when you're being taught a new thing, your brain circuits rearrange into new shapes. And in a, you know, this 
neuroplastic mechanisms and uh, you're allowed to learn this. And what psychedelics do, they catalyze this so you're more likely and you know you have a great capacity to learn uh, akin to being maybe transformed into uh, younger years as you were a kid where kids have higher neuroplasticity. Um, but uh, there's a whole bunch of other compounds that do this, including the classical antidepressant like SSRIs. There's electroconvulsive therapy that also increases neuroplasticity. So this is not something unique to psychedelics. And I think people are kind of forgetting that. Um, and uh, so the idea that we are working on is to really um, up play or um, highlight the mechanisms um, of action of neuroplasticity in those compounds. And uh, we're not focused only on the psychedelic mediated ones through, as I mentioned, the receptor 5-HT2A, but also through other receptors involved in neuroplasticity. And in that sense, we expect that we will have a compound that really potently induces these neuroplastic and, uh, effects. And uh, while not relying only on those psychedelic actions that comes hand in hand with these um, effects on cognition and uh, also risk of cardiotoxicity and high tolerance. So... This is our approach of trying to find a compound that really boosts this neuroplasticity, which is the therapeutic um, effect, but um, not being, you know, just a psychedelic on its own. That's very cool. Like, I'm glad that you highlighted that because I didn't know, like, all these things can also increase neuroplasticity. And that is a very important thing because, you know, in order to get out of a certain cycle in your head, you have to learn how to grow and, you know, change your thoughts. And I feel like that is very, very powerful to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So yes. very cool. And so what is your goal for these next generation psychedelic drugs? What would you like to see happen? Yeah, well, so um, the vision that I have is that these compounds are uh, not taken as these um, really wonky shamanic or hippie uh, um, <laughs> uh, drugs, basically, that um, are just used for fun, but that there is a component of, um, you know, that they enable healing on uh and why personally i'm really fan of of psychedelics is that the healing happens on several levels and uh it's from the neurological you know brain uh levels to um the whole body and then also the mental health and uh, currently we're, you know, focused on sorting out the mental health issues with them. This is a primary use where they have, you know, this like breakthrough potential because we didn't know how to approach that through a pharmacological way before. But our vision with April 19 
is that we can find um, drugs that will activate uh, the um, the healing on the neurological level and uh, in a more you know gentle and constant way inspire the healing at the um, you know higher levels as well and uh, what maybe rephrasing that uh, is that currently the therapies with psychedelics are a little bit like a shock therapy like really like okay I'm going to uh, drastically like scramble your brain and <laughs> erase all the data and then yeah I can install new software and then then you'll be good and so um, uh, our vision is that this process could be like a controlled demolition of the house and 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 then you know careful rebuilding and uh, that you don't lose um, or you don't need to be thrown into uh, the vortex of this really crazy and highly demanding uh, psychedelic experience. And I'm not saying that that is bad. Uh, what I'm saying is it's not for everyone. And yes. by allowing this other, you know, treatment to be here that, you know, there's not only the option, which is highly effective and really cool of going deep into the cycle experience, but also this, okay, I'm going to take it slow and really uh, take a long time to rewire my brain. That option is something that I'd like to see come to life. That's awesome. This, this really makes me so happy because there's so many people that would benefit that would never try, you know, these psychedelics by themselves because it's a very scary experience for, you know, people. They don't, you don't know what you're going to expect, you know. There's a lot of other factors that have to be, you know, all set. And to be able to give that access and help people, re you know, rewire their brain or whatever yeah. you want to say it and help them see themselves in a different way is extremely healing. And to be able to spread that in a way where more people are likely to ingest that, you know, like to take it in. That's awesome. That's really amazing, beautiful work. <laughs> I'm so excited. Thanks. And yes, like this is awesome. So where can people find April 19 or get in contact? Um, okay, so we are most active on LinkedIn uh, at just April 19 Discovery. We also have a Twitter at April 19 AI. And also, you can just email us at hello at april19.ai. <laughs> and uh, that's all the ways you can come to contact and we'll, we'll be happy to chat. Awesome. I'll definitely follow you on LinkedIn and I will list those in the description below. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to review and rate my podcast. I would really appreciate it. And thank you so much, Jakim, for taking the time to be here and sharing about this amazing company with my audience. I really appreciate Pleasure it. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 
Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Elland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.